The Exchange Podcast is brought to you in part by your university system, including Granite State College, Keene State College, Plymouth State University, and the University of New Hampshire. Imagine what you can accomplish here. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Peter Biello, and this is The Exchange. The Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Abraham Lincoln outlawed slavery at the beginning of 1863, but it wasn't until June of 1865 that slaves in Galveston, Texas finally received word that they were now free. That day, June 19, 1865, initially referred to as Emancipation Day, is now remembered as Juneteenth, a celebration of the end of the horrific practice of slavery and a day that some consider a day to, quote, celebrate, to educate, and to agitate. Today on The Exchange, the celebration of Juneteenth with Annette Gordon-Reed. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard historian and legal scholar whose work has reframed the historical dialogue about slavery and enslaved peoples in the United States. Her new book, On Juneteenth, is both a personal and a historical look at the significance of the day. And we'd love to hear from you. What does Juneteenth mean to you? When did you first hear about it? How did you celebrate it? And were you among those who pushed to make it an official holiday in New Hampshire? Let us know your story. Call us. Our number is 1-800-892-6477. 1-800-892-6477. You can also email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Annette Gordon-Reed, welcome to The Exchange. Glad to be here. Tell us about that day in June of 1865. What happened that day? Well, that was the day that United States Army General Gordon Granger went to Galveston to issue General Order Number 3, in which he said, proclaimed, that slavery was over in Texas. And he was able to do that because the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, the Confederate Army of the Trans-Mississippi, had kept fighting up until May, the end of May. And when they finally surrendered at the beginning of June and the Union forces could take over, he went to Galveston and made this pronouncement. Many people think that all of the fighting stopped after Lee surrendered at Appomattox in April, a couple of months before this, but that was the Army of Northern Virginia. The, the Army in the Southwest kept fighting. And once that was over, then the proclamation general order was issued and people learned about this. I, I should say that there's evidence that some people knew what was going to happen even before that day because there were uh, Black people celebrating and someone asked them why. And then they said, because we're going to be free. And I think they knew that the army, the military effort by the Confederacy had collapsed and the hope was there would be a new day. Mm-hmm. And as you write in this book, Galveston was a port city and port cities during that era were great hubs for news. Lots of news oh, reports. Yes, yes. People carried information uh, with them when they came and went. So you're from Texas, and because of uh, what happened in Galveston, you know, Texas has a a, a different special relationship with this holiday. Uh, While it's significant to all Americans, can you talk a little bit about why the holiday is especially significant in Texas? Well, because it's a Texas event. It was an event that happened in Texas, and the people of that time period from the very beginning were determined to keep the story of this alive. I mean, many things happen in history and they they pass out of history, important things that people just stop talking about or stop celebrating. 
But there has been sort of a continuous recognition, a commemoration of Juneteenth from 1866 on. I mean, the year immediately after uh, the announcement, uh, people celebrated in churches, they celebrated in homes. In 1876, a group of black men in Houston bought, pooled their resources and bought land to have a, a place, to have property where they could, specific property where they could come, people could come and celebrate. And that became Emancipation Park, which still exists today. So I think it's the resilience uh, of you know, the, the stubbornness, I should say, of Black Texans who kept this alive every year from the beginning, which is why it remains important in the state. And then when they left the state and went out to other places, California, most tech, Black Texans went West, but even when they went to places in the East, they took it with them and said, hey, we celebrated this and now you should too. Mm-hmm. And at, to some extent, the celebration of Juneteenth was was restricted. You you mentioned that, that there's a stubbornness involved in keeping the holiday going. Uh, whites in the 1860s were not necessarily eager to allow black displays of joy. Uh, what happened in the immediate aftermath of, of uh, Gordon Granger's announcement uh, with respect to white backlash in preventing such a celebration? Mm-hmm. Well, there are accounts of people who were whipped for... Um, for celebrating, you, it's, you just think about this is the institution of slavery had existed, you know, for decades. Many of the people who came to Texas had been from Georgia, Alabama. So we're talking at Virginia. We're talking about uh, an institution that had governed people's lives for centuries at this at this point. And to think that words that somebody could say the announcement of General Order Number Three, even the collapse of the army, would the Confederate Army would make people right off the bat say, "Okay, we did that. Now it's over. We're going to something else." I mean, we wish they had done that, but they didn't. So people were whipped, um, and people were, in some instances, not necessarily related to Juneteenth, but the the end of slavery. There was physical retaliation, and there's one story that. It sort of sticks in my mind about a person coming upon uh, a town or out the outskirts of the town and finding almost 30 bodies, men, women, and children hanging from trees. Um, people referred to bodies, seeing bodies in the river. There was just an, a torrent of violence was unleashed against the freed people out of the, out of the anger at the change in status or the announcement of a change in status. So you know, the, the phrase I use is that there was this hope, but there was also hope amidst this hostility. So that stubbornness I'm talking about was in the face of some really tough odds. And you mentioned that some of the early Juneteenth celebrations took place in churches. Was there a religious element to Juneteenth as well? Well, I mean, many of the enslaved people were religious. Uh, faith was important to them. I think that it was churches are naturally places, uh, not just for African-Americans, but for Americans in general, of gathering. And this holiday is one about gathering. It's about family. And a church would be a natural place to have this. I don't wonder, and I, I can't you know, prove this, but I don't wonder if a lot of it had to do with the thought that they might be protected there, that there might be some people who would feel, think twice about attacking people in that setting. I mean, that obviously doesn't hold true in many in other situations, but 
yes, the church was sort of the center of the community. And since this is a family and a community holiday, it makes sense to, to have them there. Listeners, we're speaking with historian Annette Gordon-Reed about her new book on Juneteenth. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, can you tell us a, a story about when you first learned of Juneteenth, how you <laughs> celebrate? Give us a call, 1-800-892-6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, I, I could tell you about when I first learned about Juneteenth. It's when I was okay. living in, in North Carolina. Uh, I, I was speaking with some friends, and they and they told me about the holiday. And what they told me about the holiday was that um, uh, that the news of the the uh, the freeing of the slaves tra- uh, traveled so slowly that it did reach uh, Galveston by June of 1865. But people weren't exactly sure what day it was, mm-hmm. so that's why they referred to it as Juneteenth. They just mm-hmm. someday in June, so Juneteenth. Is is there any truth to that that story? I I don't know. It's possibly true. I don't. I don't know that anybody knows the precise time that this happened. I mean, the precise um, uh, day that it turned to Juneteenth, but surely the, certainly the people (laughs) at the beginning knew what day it was because they were celebrating on, on that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just think it's, it's the Southern and not, you know, Southern way of mixing, you know, mushing words together. Uh, and it's a cool word. People like to say it. So. All right. Yeah. Well, um, listeners, again, give us a call. 1-800-892-6477. If you've got a question for Annette Gordon-Reed. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, when you were growing up in Texas, how did you celebrate Juneteenth? Well, um, it was a day that was sort of a a fun day for, for little kids um, because we got to drink soda. Uh, we called it soda water uh, in that time period. And it was red soda water was what you're supposed to drink. Red drinks are associated with Juneteenth. I, I'm told, I've read that hibiscus tea was the red drink that people had back because obviously they didn't have soda in the 19th century. Uh, and eating barbecue, playing with firecrackers, and I and I cannot believe that below the age of ten we were allowed to play with firecrackers. But that was a different time. <laughs> I'm not, you know, suggesting anybody do that now. But your grandparents thought that that my grandparents thought that you know firecrackers were perfectly fine if you handled them well. And it was a day when adults came together as well you know the kids were used to playing together but adults came by the house and you went by other people's houses it was as I said it was a community event I I do remember uh, one time because goat is also associated with with Juneteenth my family didn't uh, didn't partake of that but I do recall one year when a goat was killed and I witnessed this you know for for this um, holiday, and I vowed never to be a part of that again. Um, so besides that <laughs> unpleasant memory, it was a day of, of fun and family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write here about also spending a lot of time uh, assembling tamales. And then oh, yes. It was yes, a lot of work, the... but it was time yeah. with your family. <laughs> yes, well, but I didn't think of it then, you know, mm-hmm. and then as a little kid, uh, my grandmother had, had taken to making tamales to order because she was raising money for the St. Luke's United Methodist Church. They're going to build a new church. And so her tamales were, you know, that was, she would sell them and then give the money to the church. 
and people would place orders on holidays. Tamales are a, a holiday food uh, for many people. And for Juneteenth, we would have tamales. So that's kind of a, tells you something about Texas that we would have the combination of barbecue of what would people would consider to be soul food and tamales. And, and the, that's the, the Mexican influence, Mexican Mesoamerican, I should, uh, Indian um, uh, influence on the place. All these cultures together sharing and mixing food uh, on this particular day. And you remark in this book uh, about the experiences of your, your elder relatives. How did they view Juneteenth? Well, for them, it was more than just a fun day. Uh, my great-grandmother lived until I was about 11 years old. And her mother had been born in slavery. She had been freed as a child by her, her father, who was her owner as well, and her mother. But she was in, born into the institution. So my great-grandmother knew someone intimately who had been enslaved and her, her mother. And her mother had had you know, more than one husband. The, the other husbands died. And she finally married a man who had been enslaved until the end of the Civil War. So she knew people well. And my grandmother knew people. And my mother knew these people who had been born in slavery. And so it just shows you how close it, the institution was to my life and you know, our lives. It, it, this is all a, a blink of an eye in terms of history, but because it was so close, they took it very seriously. They, I remember talking to my great grandmother about how it meant a lot to them, what had happened you know, during um, hearing about the end of legalized slavery. I mean. They knew it was going to be a struggle, but to be rid of a time when you could be sold away from your family, uh, your children, your wives, and uh, treated as instruments of other people for of other people's you know desires and plans, uh, to say that that was over meant a great deal to them. And so they celebrated, but they knew that it was more. It was about memory and the memory of those people's feelings at that time. Mm -hmm. And in this book on Juneteenth, uh, you write a bit about how you integrated your school when you were little. Can, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, yes. Uh, this is the mid-60s. It was 10 years after Brown, and jurisdictions, not just in Texas, but all over, were really resisting Brown. Uh, the the notion of integrating public schools. And my school district had what was called a freedom of choice plan. And, you know, freedom of choice sounds good. You know, you have freedom of choice, you can choose. But the idea was that white parents would choose white schools and black parents would choose black schools. My parents decided to send me to a white school for first grade. I had been at the black school, Booker T. Washington, where my mother actually taught for kindergarten. But when I was going to real school, a real honest to God all day school, I would go to a white school. And so I integrated our, our town schools. It was an intense period. Um, my parents and the school district and I think the media, which would be just the town newspaper, uh, decided that this would not be a big deal. I would just go to school. My father 
took me to school the first day. I, I was not escorted by you know, offices or anything like that, like some people did back in the 50s when they had to go, when this first started. Um, and I went to school as if there were nothing out of the ordinary, but it was out of the ordinary. I, I remember periodically um, delegations of educators or people, other teachers would sort of come to administrative officials, would come to stand in the doorway and look into our classroom and sort of observe what was going on. That is to say a black child in a class with you know, 20, 20, 25 other white students. So I knew that I was on display. I understood that this was a big deal. I didn't have a clear sense at that time because I was six years old, obviously, about why, all of the reasons why it was such a big deal that black children and white children went we're gonna to go to school together. I mean, I knew about separation because when I went to the doctor, there was a waiting room for white people and a waiting room for black people. And when we went to the movies, black people had to sit in the balcony of the movie theater. So I knew about segregation, um, but I wasn't really sure. I hadn't worked out obviously at that time why it just was. And I knew by going to the school that I was doing something different. So the experience of being on display was something that you know, signaled to me, made it clear to me that this was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, about when, how old were you when you realized the, the significance of the decision your parents made? Well, <laughs> I was still a little kid uh, because about, I think it, it drove home, came home to me when I began to, was old enough to watch the news and pay attention to the news, you, at that particular time, it was sort of the high point in some ways of the, of the civil rights movement, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. I could see on the news that there was unrest, there was, people were marching. I understood that what I was doing was a part of that. So this is still below the age of 10 when I was able to hook all of these things together and understand that this was part of what would be called the movement, part of a civil rights movement, and that my parents had wanted to be a part of that. And that's why they decided to take this action, to send me to this school. Mm -hmm. and, and how did the Black community there respond to your integrating the school, especially since your, your mother was a teacher at the Black school? Well, there was some, you know, degree of concern about it and some hostility about it because people thought, well, you know, if you're teaching in this school, are you saying that our school is not good enough for your little girl, basically? And that was a, a fair enough question, but my brothers were still in Washington school. They remained there. And I think they remained there because they were in the middle of elementary school. And I don't think my parents wanted they, you know, they made friends over the years and they had, they had settled in there. Um, and, you know, I would just be at the beginning of things. And three years after, about three years after I went to Anderson, the Supreme Court struck down the freedom of choice plans and everybody had to change schools. And there was real resentment on the part of, of, um, 
of, of men, people in the black community about this because you know they lost their school and i you know talk in the book about being in, in a situation where um, a, a, a young kid was hitting me you know he saw me standing in a line and was hitting me um, because you know he knew who I was, and the funny thing about it, or the funny is not may, maybe not the word to to use to describe it, but the you know the strange thing about it is that I didn't know who he was. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it was, well, I was people knew who great. you were because you yeah. had been you know people people yeah. know what you've been through. Yes, and um, so I was a symbol of their loss. I mean, Black Booker T. Washington was the center of you know, the center of the black community during that time period. The teachers lived in the community. They you know, went to church with, with um, you know, with the, with the students. They made their parents probably socialized with, uh, with, uh, with teachers and so forth. My first grade teacher, Mrs. Daughtry was absolutely wonderful to me. I mean, I mean, she, the teachers at the school, I should have to say were, really, really on the ball with this and never treated me as if I was any different and were very supportive of me, but they didn't live in our communities. You know, they did, we didn't have the same kind of connection to one another that the students had with the people at Booker T, Booker T as they called it. So there was that. And, and my mother, even my own mother, well, both of my parents, I think, became somewhat disillusioned with the way integration played itself out because not just in my own town, but all over the South, many black teachers were removed from the classroom Hmm. because white parents did not want children, want their children to be under the guidance of or under the control of, of, um, of black teachers. And so they lost their role models. And I should say that white students lost the opportunity to have black people as role models. So it was uneven. So actually they became, uh, you know, disillusioned about it. It kind of changed why they sent me, you know, in later years, they would say, well, we sent you because we knew the court was going to strike down freedom of choice plans and you would already be in place. And so they offered sort of a pragmatic explanation, but I really, if I'm thinking about the time period, how uh, how they were they were acting and the the way the people around me and my my family were acting, uh, I think this was an idealistic choice for them. I we, you know at the beginning, but then when they saw how things were playing out, they became less less enamored of the idea. Listeners, we're speaking with Annette Gordon Reed. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author of the new book. On Juneteenth, a personal and historical look at the holiday celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll keep talking about this. What questions do you have about Juneteenth? How do you celebrate it? And how will you celebrate it this year? You can email us. Our address is exchange at nhpr.org, or you can give us a call. We'd love to hear from you now. The number is 1-800-892-6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. 6477. This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back.
This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are speaking this hour with historian Annette Gordon-Reed. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the new book, On Juneteenth, which takes a personal and historical look at the significance of this day. Please give us a call if you've got a question or a comment. Our number is one 800 892 6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. And let's start by going to the phones and talking to Barkley in Portsmouth. Barkley, thank you very much for calling. What's on your mind? Hi. Well, I called with sort of a question and sort of a comment in that a couple of nights ago, I was at a dinner party, a large dinner party, and had a conversation with a gentleman who was arguing or positing that only Texas should celebrate June 10th, that this was a Texas event, and he understands that, and he thinks that's great, but that it should not be a national celebration or or holiday. After all, people in the North fought to free the slaves, fought in the Civil War, lost their lives, um, put their farms at risk to go and fight, and he was very much against this um, sort of national celebration of Juneteenth. And I argued with him, or had a a long discussion with him about this as politely as possible at a dinner party, Um, But and since then I've come up with my own thoughts about answering that, that after all, we, we celebrate July 4th with great ceremony and celebration, and that was not a celebration for black people. Um, <clears throat> but I was just interested in getting the comments from from Annette Gordon-Reed about her response to that kind of uh, argument. Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, what do you think? Well, I understand the idea that because it happened in Texas and it most directly affected um, people who were enslaved in Texas, that you know, it, it, it should just be a Texas holiday. However, this was made possible because of the final surrender of the Confederate Army, as I mentioned before, which was also made possible by the actions of troops in the United States of America, uh, black troops and white troops who defeated the Confederate armies and caused the surrender. So that is something, the end of the Confederate military effort during this time period and the freeing of the final group of people who were being held, who were prevented from being free because of military conflict, I think is something that affects the entire country. It's not just a story about Texas, it's about the union, about the American union. And I think the American union should celebrate that. It should be celebrated or commemorated is the word. Some people prefer commemoration of it um, because it represents an advance for the union totally, for the union effort totally. It's the the culmination of that, of the military effort. And it is a, a marker to my mind, a mark of progress in human rights, not just for Texas, not just for America, but for the world. Uh, that this, the idea that chattel slavery uh, was defeated and it was defeated by a a military effort whose success was, who finally comes to fruition with the collapse of the Confederate war effort. So 
I think it's a national, I think it could be a national holiday. I, I do understand the fact that we had this as a special holiday among Texas for many years, but people are anxious, have been evidently, and this over the past, I would say eight or nine years, really, I began to see more and more about Juneteenth. And then last year, a sort of a real spike in interest in the, in the store, in the, uh, in the day. Uh, among people all over the country. So I think we're a union and this was the victory of the ultimate victory of the United States and the American Union with the collapse of the army and Granger going in and bringing in the last people who were being held because of the Confederate military effort into under the control of, of the United States. So I, I see it as, as a national holiday. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, your integration of schools. Uh, I wanted to ask you a different question about your time in school in Texas, and that's a question about what you were learning as a student about Texas history and, and then what you learned later about Texas history. What were they teaching you as a child about the origins of the state of Texas? Well, we talked a great deal about the Texas Republic. Texas was a republic beginning in 18, 1836 after it broke away from Mexico and um, got annexed to the United States in 1845, but it existed as an independent republic. And so we learned about the Alamo. We learned about the various battles of San Jacinto, Goliad, all those things that you're, we're supposed to remember. Um, and the heroic figures who were at these various places, particularly the Alamo, we learned about Quanta Parker, uh, the, the last Cherokee chief, and call that in, in, in Texas, who was uh, the daughter of, I mean, excuse me, the son of a, of a woman who um, had been uh, kidnapped into the Cherokees and had married uh, the chief and had produced a son who became a, a leader there. Uh, we learned about lots of things in Texas, but not I don't recall talking very much about slavery. That was sort of glossed over. And that could have been because of discomfort about the institution and that it reflected poorly or badly on it. It may have been about the sensitivities of black students. I don't know, but we did not talk about slavery that much when we took fourth grade and seventh grade history. I don't remember that much about it. And I think if we had dwelled on this very much, I would have uh, I would have remembered it. I do remember talking about a man named Esteban, who mm -hmm. I discuss in the book, Estebanico, who um, came to the Americas with Spanish explorers in the 1500s, the 1520s. And we knew that he came ashore. He actually was in the area around Galveston. Galveston keeps figuring in all of these various uh, stories uh, around Galveston. and is for a time enslaved by indigenous people, they escape. And by this time, the expedition has dwindled down to these four men who are wandering across Texas um, or actually going West, trying to find you know, other Spanish people, Spanish forts or whatever, and wanders across Texas, Mexico, and ends up on the Pacific seaboard after many years of being with the native peoples, indigenous peoples and escaping from them and then walking. So he's the first person of African descent of name 
that we know of. And I mean, there were others as well. We just don't know their names. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to talk about the origins of Africans, the presence in the area that is now called Texas, to sort of rewind the clock past being brought over from Georgia and um, you know, Florida and other places by enslavers you know, during um, the 19th century. So and yeah, the origins, uh, the origin yeah, the story origin stories is so go back, important. back far, yes. And, and, and it's, it's one of those stories that, that's important in part because this Estevanico uh, was here before 1619 and, and because of the 1619 project, we, we are, um, you know, casual listeners may, may think that this, this, this was the origin story, but, but the, what you're writing about here tells a different one. And, and yes. that's very important. Yes, I mean, I, I think it really does give a different view of Africans and to know that African people were in the Americas before 1619 and were not just in the area of Texas, but very famously in St. Augustine in Florida, uh, again, 100 years or so before, about 100 years before um, 1619. 1619 is important because it's the start of the British <laughs> the British uh, connection to the United States and the British slave trade that begins to bring blacks to uh, people of African descent to that area. But you know, just because the people in St. Augustine or the people who were in Texas would have been speaking Spanish doesn't mean that we're not that they were not connected to other people who had been taken from Africa and brought as enslaved people to the so-called New World. There are points of connection because of that. And what I would like, I'm hoping that people will do is to try to think of those origin stories that we, we have a connection to those people as well, even though they did not, did not speak English. Mm -hmm. and, and knowing so much about Estebanico in particular is important, in part because he, as you mentioned, was not nameless, but also that he was, uh, as far as I understand, rather very intelligent. Like he, he picked up languages very quickly. Uh, and, and that's the kind of story that, that needs to be told more often. Uh -huh. Yes, he, was, he served as a translator sometimes for um, the Europeans and uh, uh, indigenous people. Uh, he, once they left the confines of you know, the, the expedition, when, at, when, they, when they were shipwrecked, and it's a long story, but it, they end up, they dwindled down to just those four people, they had to co cooperate, they had to work together as equals in a way, in order to get out of that situation. And I mean, it really, I think it tells you something about the nature of slavery, something about the nature of racism, that when they had to do it, they could become, they could rely on, you know, a, a person of, of color, a black person to know how to communicate. And once, and I mentioned in the book, once they get to the Spanish fort and they get back amongst their people, then all of a sudden, things, you know, things try to, things revert <laughs> to, uh, to the system that, you know, produced and maintained slavery. So I think it's important to know that, to know that his talents were utilized, that Black people, you know, were doing lots of different things in the Americas. Some of them left the expeditions, went off on their own into Mexico and Central America and did stuff besides work on cotton plantations or sugarcane plantations. Not to say that those people weren't 
creative in their own way, but it's just suggesting that there was one thing, one or two things that black people were doing limits people's understandings about blacks capabilities and limits the story, the history of what blacks were doing during that time period. Uh, listeners, we're speaking with Annette Gordon-Reed, Harvard historian and author of the new book on Juneteenth, an exploration of the significance, both cultural and personal, of the holiday celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. What is your experience with Juneteenth? How do you plan to commemorate the day? Email exchange at nhpr.org or call 1-800-892-6477. We get this note from Grace in Henniker, who writes, As a white woman who has lived in New England her entire life, I am embarrassed and quite frankly ashamed that I had no education on black history in our nation, in New England, and right here in New Hampshire. Thanks to people like uh, today's guest, to Jerry Ann Bogus and her work on the Black Heritage Trail in New Hampshire, the Black Lives Matter movement in Juneteenth, I have learned of a shameful segment of our American history. I feel a collective white shame for this previously veiled part of American history and hope we can op- open up this wound to work to heal our nation for all our citizens once and for all. Uh, that's the comment from Grace in Henniker. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, what do you make of Grace's comments? Well, um, I don't think that, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of shame uh, in this situation for things that people were not told or that people did not know. Um, I, I think the better, I, I think the, I would hope that the lesson to be learned from this is to be open to new discoveries, to, un- to understand. I think I would say understand why we are in the predicament that we're in today rather than feeling um, shame. I, I know that that's a, <laughs> that may be a natural response to all of this, but I think the fact that she is willing to accept this, accept it, because you know that there are some people who still resist these ideas uh, and say that this isn't true, that they're exaggerated. I mean, she's already way ahead of many people in, in her attempt to grapple with these kinds of, of stories. But, you know, this is what I try to do and people all over the country, teachers, I, I participate in teachers institutes and all of these things for, for people in middle school and high school to be able to bring these stories to people so that they can begin to reckon with it and make it a part of their understanding of what it means to be an American. They're good things, many of the good things that it means, many good things that uh, are part of the American experience, but we have to know these parts as well if we're gonna have a complete picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write in this book that there are, are myths that, that groups of people tell themselves uh, as a kind of binding agent for that particular community. And some of these myths can be good. Some of them can be bad. Um, I'm hoping this isn't too broad a question, but I was going to ask you about uh, what myths about um, Black Americans or Black history in the United States persist that you wish more people knew were myths and not reality? Well, some people still actually believe that slavery was a benign institution, um, that it was actually good for African-Americans, that it wasn't a big deal. I also think that there's a myth that the country, that slavery was sort of like a, like an aberration (laughs) in the beginning and it really didn't have 
it was in the South and it didn't really have a major effect on the development of the, of the country that we, we sort of developed outside of that. But slavery was integral to the economy and to the development of the nation. And that's why, it, and it also created a racial hierarchy that persisted afterwards. So I, I think the idea that slavery wasn't a, an important part of, of the development of the United States and isn't part of our legacy today is, is a myth that I, I would like to have, that people would be disabused of a notion that we should move beyond. Well, let's take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about history and the way it's taught. Uh, we're speaking with Annette Gordon-Reed, Harvard historian and author of the new book on Juneteenth, all about commemorating that holiday and what it means to her and what it means to this country. And we'd love to hear from you. Please do join this conversation. If you've got questions or comments, our number is 1-800-892-6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and we're speaking this hour with historian Annette Gordon-Reed. She is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the new book On Juneteenth, which takes a personal and historical look at the significance of the day. Give us a call now. Tell us how you'll celebrate or commemorate Juneteenth, uh, what or who you'll be keeping in mind. Our number is 1-800-892-6477. You can also email us the address is exchange at nhpr.org. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, I wanted to ask you about this current moment in American history uh, because lawmakers are fighting now in some state legislatures, including in New Hampshire, about what and how history can be taught in public schools. Uh, this is the so-called divisive concepts legislation that seeks to ban certain teaching about racism and sexism in public schools. Uh, critics of critical race theory are painting it as, frankly, something that it isn't. Uh, what comes to mind for you when you hear these debates over how history, in particular black history, is taught in schools? Well, the fact that it's a perennial problem. There have been other moments when there have been arguments about history and the history that's taught. There was the sort of history wars back in the 80s when they were trying to develop standards for history teaching and so forth, because history is it, it's political. I mean, it deals with subjects that about which people care very much. And we're a young country. So a lot of the things that happened in the past, if you think about the founding and so forth, or, or I mentioned earlier about slavery, how close we really are to those times compared to Europe, uh, European countries or China, the 5,000 years of history. Uh, and we are still fighting about things that are a kind of raw to us. And we are a diverse country um, in, you know, in terms of race, in terms of you know, ethnicities, those kinds of things. And so it's a very volatile, these are very volatile subjects for people. But the whole thing is in some ways, the critical race theory thing is, is mystifying to me because I, you know, I'm a law professor and my colleague, my classmate, um, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, 
was one of the, one of the proponents of critical race uh, theory and Derek Bell, who taught at Harvard uh, as well. So I know these things from law about the, the role of race in law. And I just find it hard to believe that in schools and middle schools and high schools that people are teaching critical race theory or actually teaching critical race theory. I don't think that that's what they're talking about. And they, they're talking about race, certainly, in these schools in ways that they didn't when I was growing up. But I, that's kind of strange to me. I, don't, I really have, this it comes out of nowhere. I, I saw um, um, a, a statistic the other day or, or a, a, a graph that talked about the number of times critical race theory was mentioned in this particular publication uh, you know, in 2018, you know, zero times. It's like, it's like a fad. Mm -hmm. to now start talking about, oh, they're teaching critical race theory and people don't really know what it is. And I just don't imagine that that's really the actual thing is being taught in, in, in school. So yeah, it's volatile because people who want, who believe that the only way to be patriotic is to be 100% positive all the time are going to be upset when people mention what happened you know, mm -hmm. in the past, because a lot of bad things happen in the past and we have to face that. Right. And, and part of the debate about teaching history is uh, the phrase, just teach the facts. You know, high school teachers in particular should just they should just teach both sides and not push politics onto onto students. But to teach both sides of history uh, evenly, I mean, is that even possible when one of those sides is something as horrible as slavery? No, it's it's possible to do it, but is it wise to do it? Is it moral to do it? No. You know, are you going to say, okay, uh, yes, <laughs> it, it, it might make sense to take people's children away from them and sell them uh, to Mississippi while they're in Virginia, or it might, you know, I, I think that that's, history is a moral enterprise. And I think that you should be talking about things that are so, you know, egregious, things like that, uh, where there aren't two equal sides to it. I mean, you, you can give the pers perspective of the Confederates and the people who believe this, but you have to tell the story of what they did. And I think when you tell that story, children, young people understand, you know, the problem with, with slavery. Um, but pretending that it doesn't exist, I mean, I, I think down in Texas right now, uh, there's something called Project 1836, which is the year that Texas became a republic. And it too is interested in trying to teach patriotic, um, patriotic education or provide for it and limit discussions about race and so forth. But the Texas constitution, the constitution of the state of, of, the, of the Republic of Texas, I should say, explicitly protects slavery, talks about slavery, and its provisions says that people of African descent cannot become citizens of Texas, prohibits them from free blacks from coming to Texas. So I don't know how you're gonna talk about 1836 if you can't read the constitution of 1836 and see what it says. Um, it's divisive now because people want, don't want to admit that their ancestors or people whom they admired uh, from the past did terrible things. But I don't understand why you can't recognize that. You should recognize that and say, repudiate that and move on. You can't hide it. That's not what education is supposed to be about. 
Well, let's go to the phones and talk to Wayne in Durham. Wayne, thank you very much for calling. What's on your mind? I was uh, going to make a couple of points. One was I was an officer in Vietnam and how hard it was to motivate black GIs who were, uh, were reluctant to put their lives on the line for a country that when they returned would provide no education, no access to the voting booth, poor job opportunities. And it was me and a black captain in the 9th Infantry Division assigned to try to do something when we had a colonel convinced there was an insurrection coming and they would plant evidence in the footlockers of black leaders to make sure they went to jail. And it was it was a horrible situation. And uh, the other thing I'd say, a point a woman made easier, I sponsored the King Holiday Bill in 1989 when New Hampshire was the last in the country to even consider it. And I received hate mail and death threats. And the day that the bill was defeated in the New Hampshire House, the black uh, representative from Nashua, who had co-sponsored the bill with me, ran out of the state house, literally. We got 68 votes. And I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going back to Georgia where it's safe. I, I, I think that I can't exonerate New Hampshire. We should know better. And I, I can say that as a, growing up in an all-white town outside of Massachusetts, I had no education until I met Dr. King in college when he spoke at, at Bowdoin. And uh, I was really shaken by his message. Uh, uh, my point is we have a lot more work to do than, than what we've done so far. Well, Wayne, thank you very much for your, for your comments. And I'll, I'll turn now to Annette Gordon-Reed for her response. Well, yes, we do have a lot of work to do, but we've always had allies. There have been people from the beginning who were voices against enslavement, um, people who were voices for civil rights after the end of the Civil War, and whites and blacks who joined together in the civil rights movement in the 20th century to move things forward. So, you know, it's, I don't think people shouldn't despair um, because that, to my mind, is not a recipe for effective action. But you do have to acknowledge, as I was saying before, you have to acknowledge reality. You know, where were we? How did we get from that point to this point? And it required people to have a realistic assessment of their situation before they could make a plan to move out of it and to move forward. So. There's a lot going on right now, but I think there are a lot of people who are attuned to this, who are paying attention to this, and I hope will mobilize against efforts to really you know, downplay the problems of the past or to create an education, give people an education that is insufficient, that they won't be able to understand why we're in the position we're in today and to work towards a better future. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, I quoted at the top of this program a history professor, Mitch Katchen, who called Juneteenth a day to celebrate, to educate, and to agitate. I wanted to ask you about this description because that seems like there's there's real work there uh, mm-hmm. involved in educating people about the history and also agitating, I, I assume, for equal rights under, under the law. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to what extent is the work of educating and agitating happening, in your view? Well, I think it is happening. I mean... When 
Gordon Granger issued, issued general order number three, one of the things he said in it, which he didn't have to say, but he did say, is that the former enslaved people would occupy a position of equal, of basically absolute equality, position of absolute equality with, with other people, their former enslavers and people and whites in Texas who had power over them. And of course that incensed a number of people, but it, it was something, it linked the general order to the Emancipation Proclamation, which in turn can be linked to the Declaration of Independence and the words of the Declaration that everybody cherishes, the beginning, the preamble, not the part, the grievances that don't have any application to us anymore, but we hold these truths to be self-evident. And so Juneteenth is an opportunity to talk about what happened, educate people about it. And in the names of those people who first heard those words, first heard the news, work towards the equality of property rights, equality of citizenship uh, to make that promise real. And so I do think that it's, it's education and agitation and the determination to move forward. Uh, we got this note from Lauren, uh, a lighthearted note about Juneteenth. Lauren says, I've been invited to my very first Juneteenth party. Any tips on what I might bring with me? I'm thinking maybe a cake. A cake would be nice. Red velvet cake, if it can be that, because red is the color. Um, or a red drink. <laughs> if you could find some kind of hibiscus tea would be nice as well. Hibiscus um, tea. Yes. Hibiscus tea, red velvet cake. Those are the things that people eat there. But your presence would probably be enough. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. That's that's a great uh, question, really worth asking. And uh, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, we talked a little bit about the, the possibility of Juneteenth being a national holiday. I believe it's a, uh, recognized on the state level uh, in 47 states now. Uh, mm -hmm. But how optimistic are you that it's going to become a national holiday? Oh, I think there's a good chance that it might. I think it failed. I was told by one vote um, last year, they've put it back up and they're going to try again. Uh, I think it would be good. And that would be a day when we talk about education to talk about emancipation as a process. So we talk about the proclamation. We talk about, you know, Virginia's day, the fall of Richmond day when they, I think it's April 3rd when they celebrate that. And there's the celebrations for other things in St. Augustine to bring all those things together to talk about, you know, the, the notion of, as I said, emancipation as a process that came to legal fruition when uh, the 13th Amendment was finally ratified. It's a day, to, it's the day for history. And as a historian, I love that kind of thing. So uh, I hope it becomes a national holiday and we continue to make it a day of teaching people about our past. Well, Annette Gordon-Reed, thank you so much for coming on the program today and sharing your insights. We really appreciate having you. Thank you for inviting me. That's historian Annette Gordon-Reed. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the new book, On Juneteenth, A Personal and Historical Look at the Significance of the Day. And thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Jessica Hunt produced today's show. The show's producers are Jane Vaughn and senior producer Christina Phillips. The engineer today, Dan Colgan. Michael Brindley is our program manager, and our theme music was composed by Bob Lord. Remember, this conversation is going to continue online at nhpr.org and on the Exchange Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for NHPR Exchange. That's all one word. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for listening.
The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.